Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Why do so many physicians require women to get a pap smear and a pelvic exam before they'll write a prescription for birth control? Most of us probably never think about that question. It just kind of is what it is. But Jill B. Delston isn't like most of us. She's a professor of philosophy at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, and that means getting curious about things that many of us just shrug off as the way things are. Delston has a new book out. It's called Medical Sexism. And in it, she argues that requiring these invasive procedures before giving women access to birth control is actually a form of medical sexism. It's a surprising argument to me and and a provocative one. And so she's here today to discuss it. So Jill B. Delston, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So Jill, so many of us just kind of accept pap smears and pelvic exams as a necessary hurdle to getting what we want, which is oral contraceptive. Sort of like you have to get a new eye exam before you get your prescription for contact lenses. Mm -hmm. But your argument is that it's not nearly so benign. Why not? Well, one reason why it's problematic is that a lot of women, a lot of patients are getting these tests too often. So they're getting these tests every year, when in reality, that leads to just a lot of false positives, overdiagnosis, and overtreatment. And so when the medical industry recommends that patients get these tests probably more likely um, every three to five years, but doctors are requiring them every year to do a a prescription refill, then it leads to these influences, which I think are really problematic for reproductive autonomy. I think those of us who don't really think about these issues, again, we think of pap smears as being something that are done for our own good. I mean, Mm -hmm. they detect cervical cancer. So isn't this just a case of doctors, they have one carrot, they know we (laughs) want the prescription. And so they have to use that to get us to do this preventative care that some of us lazy people would otherwise just brush (laughs) off. Exactly. Yeah, I think that that's one of the motivations is doctors think, hey, this is great for patients. I want them to get testing for cancer, get these cancer screenings that can save lives. And cancer screenings really do save lives. Pap tests have saved lives for so many people. Um, But when those pap tests get weaponized to use against female patients and and limit their reproductive autonomy, that's when we should start to worry. And so uh, it's not really the role of a doctor to paternalistically tell a patient what's in their best interest and withhold needed medical care in order to do an unrelated procedure. Um, that That's reliant on a complicated calculus for an individual patient about their, um, uh, their time, their motivation, their other sorts of medical needs. And so um, I think one thing we should keep in mind is that it's not really in the patient's best interest. <laughs> and also that it's not the role of doctors to incentivize patients um, to get these cancer screenings. So if you're listening and you want to join our conversation, um, I'm curious, do you think that Jill Delston is onto something here, that the doctors shouldn't link these two things? You can join the conversation if you give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Jill, just how common is it for doctors to link these two things, to mm-hmm. force people to get a pap smear, say, before Mm -hmm. they will write that prescription? Well, that's a complicated question, and the evidence um, points in a lot of different directions. We know that this is going on. We know it's going on to a great degree. What's difficult to figure out is to what extent, because it relies on um, doctor surveys, patient surveys. These are complicated ways of um, collecting the evidence. The rates of of doctors engaging this practice are um, looked to be 
less common now than they once were, which is great. <laughs> but um, at the same time, I worry that doctors are moving away for, from this practice for the wrong reasons. How are, so? How are they moving away from it because they are now realizing that the evidence doesn't show that yearly testing is good for patients? Um, or are they moving away from it because they're respecting the bodily autonomy, the informed consent, the informed refusals of their patients, and trying to protect their um, reproductive rights? And so when uh, patients say, I don't want this medical intervention, doctors ought to be respecting that. So you make this argument that this is, it's paternalistic, it's its a form of sexism, and a cynical person, and I'll admit, in some cases, I can be kind of cynical about the cost of medical care. Mm-hmm. Um, people might posit that really the physicians just want the profit that comes from making us come into the office mm-hmm. and billing us for this extra procedure. It's all about what can they get the insurance companies to pay for. Is it possible that rather than sexism, this is just greed? Sure. Yeah, that's absolutely possible. And I don't want to deny that there's a financial exploitation component going on to this practice. I do think that that's part of it. And medical sexism can interact with that financial explanation because it's easier to exploit um, vulnerable populations. It's easier to exploit um, people who are not privileged than people who are already powerful. And so if there are interlocking forms of oppression or injustice that are going on in our society, you might see more of this classism going on. Another reason why I think that that answer doesn't tell the whole story is that you see other examples of the same sorts of behaviors and actions on the part of doctors go on when there is no financial motive. And so the financial motive can explain some of the phenomena, but not all of them. Give me an example of that, something where you're not seeing that financial motive, but you see the same sort of actions on the part of physicians. Sure. Well, I think bed rest could be an example of that. It's a prescription uh, that doctors give too often to patients. There's not a lot of evidence that shows that bed rest is helpful for patients who receive that di- um, that recommendation. And you're talking about for women who are pregnant. Correct. Um, and a doctor might say, hey, this is this pregnancy is in some ways troubled. You yes. need to just spend the next couple months lying flat on your back. Right, exactly. You take this on in the book pretty aggressively. <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, and again, this is something I'd never thought about, not a philosophy professor. What is wrong with having a woman get off her feet and um, you know protect this growing life inside of her? Sure. Well, um, you know, there's just never been any evidence that bed rest protects against preterm labor, which is primarily where doctors, we see doctors recommending it. Um, And so what goes on in those instances is not some financial incentive on the part of the doctor to recommend bed rest, but rather just a doctor engaging in a practice of recommending um, bed rest when it looks like that actually harms fetuses and pregnant people. Hmm. And so what goes on in those cases, and and huge uh, evidence suggests a huge number of doctors are recommending bed rest, what goes on in those cases is maybe the doctor is the bed rest has got a little bit of truthiness to it. You know, even though the evidence has shown us that it's not helpful, um, it fits with our stereotypes about motherhood, sacrificing your career. You can't go to work, right? If you're um, being told uh, you you have to stay weak, you can't exercise, you have to literally be barefoot (laughs) and pregnant. (laughs) And so um, I think that our stereotypes can influence these diagnoses and recommendations. Now, when you talk about something like bed rest, there's so clearly a cost to a woman, as you say. I mean, they can't go into work. This is months on end where normally a pregnant woman would expect to to be out there earning money. But 
Going back to the pap smear idea, this is obviously a much shorter um, burden for people Mm -hmm. to bear. Yet you're talking about, you use the phrase, the cost to women. Mm -hmm. What is the true cost of something like an unwarranted pap smear? Well, it depends on the person. And I think that's why it's such a complex question. It's going to have different impacts on different people. If you have to sacrifice um, going into work for an, an unnecessary doctor's visit or test, and you're an hourly worker, that's going to have a different um, impact on you as if than if you're salaried. And so uh, similarly, if some people who lose contraception access um, they can handle that very easily. Some people can't. And so one one problem is the literal um, impacts of over-testing, which can lead to treatments that can, um, even diagnostic treatments that can be incredibly damaging to women. And another one is losing that contraception access. So people maybe don't have time to come in for the pap smear. They can't right. come in right away. Right. They end up running out of, say, a birth control pill. In mm-hmm. the meantime, you're saying that has a real cost. Sure, absolutely. And so does the stress and worry of, of things thinking, oh, no, I might not have pregnancy protection this month, even if the doctor comes in and says, oh, I'll give you a holdover prescription for the next month until you can come in. That stress and worry, those phone calls, those those do impose a cost. We're talking to UMSL professor Jill B. Delston about her new book, Medical Sexism. Um, and you can join the conversation. We're going to go to the phone lines here in a minute. But if you have thoughts on that, you can join us by calling 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Um, we've got Debbie calling from St. Louis. Hi, Debbie. You're on St. Louis on the air. Hi there. Uh, thank you for joining us. What What are your thoughts on this um, very important subject? Well, I just had just very, some very sort of simple thoughts on it, which is that I go annually to get to get um, checked out because if I had cancer, I would not want to wait three to five years to find out. And uh, and I feel like if my doctor, um, you know, so I appreciate the fact that my doctor lets me get a test once once a year and that it's uh, my insurance covers it because mm. if, if it was really the case that the doctor couldn't tell you that you had to get it, then you probably wouldn't be covered by the insurance, I would imagine, and mm. I would feel more vulnerable. So, so mm. I personally appreciate that. But then again, you know, I don't have some of the other issues that that she's talking about. So I would just want it to be covered in case some people were interested in having that protection. Mm-hmm. Debbie, so. thank you for that call. Um, I appreciate that perspective. Jill, what would you say to the issue Debbie's raising here? I think Debbie makes a great point here, which is that some patients really do want these tests, and they shouldn't be denied access to life-saving cancer screenings. And so um, if you if you are a patient who wants a cancer screening and your doctor thinks it's a good idea for you, why do we need to connect it to contraception access? It's not as though those two that test is connected to the medication. It's not as though we're doing a liver functioning test for a prescription which could adversely impact your liver. So let's not tie them together. That's one um, answer I would give to this caller. And then another um, response I would give is, look, just because these cancer screenings are life-saving does not mean that they're life-saving at every interval. If you get the cancer screening every three months, would that be better? If you get it every six weeks, would that be better? No. We have evidence that shows us at what rates um, in, in a public health 
uh, from a public health perspective, these tests are going to be beneficial to women. And so let's follow that evidence. I was actually very surprised by um, what you say in the book, that the actual guidelines say women don't need this every year. That's right. So it's interesting that it's just kind of baked into the system when their own training should be telling them otherwise. Exactly. And that their training has been telling them otherwise for decades. And so when you do some of these diagnostic tests, which can adversely impact sexual functioning and have other negative impacts on patients, um, it's it's not a, a benign test. And so we really need to be careful about how often we administer it. Um, Stephen just sent us an email. He also has a, a pretty interesting point of view. He writes, it is a physician's role to be paternalistic to some extent. If there is high risk to people, we should try to get them to do the right thing. People can change who they see as a physician. I think he's implying if they don't like it. Mm. What, what would you say to that? Well, I do want to point out that paternalism means violating somebody's preferences for their best interest. And so we do have to point out that this is not in the patient's best interest, either to have the test every year or to have it tied to contraception access. I would also point out that um, the, the doctor doesn't always know what's in the patient's best interest. We don't know what sort of care the patient is sacrificing in order to come in to get these unnecessary tests. We don't know what trade-offs they're making in their lives. And pregnancy is an incredibly um, uh, life-changing and momentous medical condition, which we think think that people should not necessarily have to deal with if they don't want it. And so um, in, a, in a country where the maternal mortality rate is so so dangerous, um, I think that paternalistically there's just not a lot of justification. Now, is a doctor's role to act paternalistically toward the patient? Um, I don't think so. You know, I think it's the doctor's role to have a conversation with the patient, to I, I present the patient with facts that would inform their decision making. But uh, we we have this idea in this country that you ought not um, you have the right to refuse treatment. You ought not have a medical intervention that you you explicitly say you don't want. Do you think we ought to be able to get um, birth control over the counter at a pharmacy? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yes, I, I do think that 75 countries have birth control over the counter. And 75? It, yeah. That's interesting. So the system of even having to go to the physician is something that's more unique to the U.S. Absolutely, especially in the developed world. So it is very safe to have it over the counter. Does that mean it's going to expand access to put it over the counter? I'm not so sure. It all depends on how that policy is pursued. So for example, right now, now, birth control is covered under the Affordable Care Act as free preventative health care. And so patients are not paying extra money for their birth control prescriptions. If it gets put over the counter um, and then patients have to pay $30 to $50, is that going to expand access or reduce access? If we're putting it over the counter as a as a <laughs> with the goal of reducing medical sexism great we'll we'll take into consideration those sorts of ramifications but if we're leaving medical sexism to the side and not recognizing it or putting it in the forefront of the conversation, then we could end up hurting women in the long run. I'm going to go back to the phone lines. Nick is calling from Wentzville. Hi, Nick, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi. Hi, how are you, ma'am? Um, 
there's a number of I'm a drug development scientists, and we have propagated this issue, right? Women's health has largely been ignored in terms of clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Women's health has largely been ignored in terms of characterizing the development of IBD and point-of-care testing, and we need to move those out of the clinic into the home, right? There's a lot of testing that uh, we need to validate and reconcile with the population that it's intended for. That's my my comment. Um, Nick, thank you for that. Jill, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think Nick makes a great point that women have been ignored in research and in science for too long. And every time uh, there's been a big public statement, we need to include women more in clinical trials, um, things often tend to stay the same after that. So I think what's partly going on there is making women invisible in the medical field and in science. And when you do that, you're going to end up hurting women. Um, we We don't have enough information about pregnancy and contraception. We don't have enough information about a lot of these issues that affect female patients and patients more generally. And so I I agree with this point. Now, Jill, you yourself are a mother, and I find myself wondering how your own experiences in childbirth and maybe even trying to prevent childbirth at some point um, led into your thoughts on this subject. Oh, um, interesting. Yes, I was nine months pregnant when I signed the book contract. And I thought, (laughs) perfect timing. (laughs) Is this perfect timing or not? (laughs) So, um, yeah, I think that it's absolutely influenced my thinking on this issue, not just because I want to create a more just world for my children, um, but also because, yeah, sure, I've experienced in uh, in a doctor's office having my opinions and preferences overridden. Um, and that's incredibly hard to, to deal with. Um, and so when I thought about labor and delivery, um, you know, I wasn't ignoring my own experience or the experience I heard from my friends. For example, a lot of people seem to um, have postpartum depression go undiagnosed. Mm-hmm. And it looks like there are a lot of systemic features in place in our medical field that allow that to happen. Not enough follow-up appointments, not enough people asking those questions. And so my own experience is hearing from friends who knew they had postpartum depression, but maybe didn't know how to handle it, even though it's a treatable condition, um, influenced my thinking as well. Now, you're a professor of philosophy, and you're sort of taking on the medical establishment to some extent in this book. Have you gotten pushback? from them saying, hey, this is not your subject area. Go back to thinking abstract thoughts about the world. (laughs) Um, No, not necessarily. Um, You know, I don't want to... I don't want to present this book as an attack on the medical field. I do want to work with the medical field to improve these issues. And so I think that good philosophy is informed by medicine and science. But I also think that good medicine and science ought to be informed by philosophy. There's an interplay between these two two fields. And that sort of interdisciplinarity is so crucial in really fundamentally addressing these issues. So um, I think that, you know, a lot of times doctors are engaging in moral decision making or uh, moral dilemmas without realizing it or without thinking about it um, in in the way that I think that they should. So, Jill, you have a book signing coming up. That's going to be on January 16th. Um, For those who might want to hear more about the arguments you're making, uh, give us the details on that. Sure. It's at Subterranean Books on Del Mar. It's on January 16th, Thursday at 7 p.m. I'll be doing a reading and a book signing. I know that the book is rather expensive. (laughs) Is it? How expensive is it? Um, It's more than $70. (laughs) Wow. Okay. That's one expensive book. But the conversation is, is free to join? The conversation is free. You do not have to buy the book. You can ask your library 
library to buy the book. It's really priced, uh, the price point is more for libraries and institutions to purchase and then a paperback down the line if I am so lucky. So you can come by, you can ask me a question and uh, that's free. <laughs> well, Jill Delston, author of Medical Sexism, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.